Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episode includes Which is Harder, Healing or Forgiving? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God say no to your prayer? Why does God test people? Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Enjoy. Which is harder, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Well, it's actually a question worth getting into. So you know what we should do? Let's get into it. In the Gospel reading for today, Jesus heals a paralytic, but that's not the first thing that he does. The first thing that he does, actually, upon seeing the faith of the paralytic and his friends, is he forgives the sins. And the scribes who are standing around, they see Jesus forgive the sins, or claim to forgive the sins of this this paralyzed man, and in their hearts they're saying, you know, who does he think he is, this blasphemer? He's acting as though he's God. Hmm. Almost as if Jesus knew that he was God and claimed to be God on a regular basis. But I'm not going to get into that can of worms. So, Jesus forgives the sins of this paralytic. And the, the scribes are saying, you know, only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus, knowing what's in their heart, responds with a challenge. He says, which is easier, to say that your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, get up, and walk? And then, of course, he... He does so. He heals the paralytic of his physical malady after already absolving him of his sins. The interesting thing here is that you have more of an objection from the well, for the scribes. You have more of an objection from the scribes that Jesus is saying that your sins are forgiven. They weren't so much bothered that Jesus could potentially heal this person miraculously, or that this person is coming to Jesus presumably for that specific purpose. But the fact that Jesus forgives sins is blasphemy to them. It's more offensive that Jesus would be forgiving, or that God would be forgiving, or that Jesus would be God. That is more offensive and more shocking, more impossible than a paralytic getting up and walking at, just at a command. The interesting thing is that to this day, believe it or not, atheists, non-Christians, they, they tend to get more offended, more up, up in a tizzy about the forgiveness of God than any of the physical miracles that are done. Now, of course, you'll, you'll hear them say, well, the Bible is either wrong or inaccurately recorded something or is flat out lying about such and such miraculous event. The flood, the six-day creation, healing the water and the wine, Jesus walking on water. Pick and choose whatever physical, observable uh, miracle you want. They'll basically say, well, you know, the Bible's not right. The Bible is incorrect about this record, or this record is an you know, allegory or analogy, or it's a fabrication, or, you know, whatever. That's about the end of the conversation. The Bible is not right. But if you really want to rustle some jimmies, 
talk about the forgiveness of God. And what's interesting, I think, is that this group of people that tends to think of God as a, as a malicious, monstrous, wrathful being, and they, <laughs> I love the phrase, God doesn't exist and I hate him. <laughs> they believe that God is this malicious overlord if he exists. And it's so evil that God would punish people by sending them to hell or by wiping out the Canaanites or, you know, whatever punishment God, God righteously doles out. They hate God for his, his, his justice and his wrath and the punishment that comes from him. So you would think that this news of a free forgiveness, of a forgiveness of sins that's not based on works or based on somebody's goodness, that this grace and mercy, this would appeal to these atheists and these non-believers. You would think, but you'd be wrong. No. Just like the scribes, the unbelievers at the time, the unbelievers of the present day are actually more offended by a forgiving God. They would rather have a God that is wrathful and, and vengeful and without grace and mercy and of course you know uh, likes everything that they do and you know approves of everything that they do but a God who would smite their enemies just no mercy whatsoever that's the kind of God that they actually would like when they hear that a God forgives sins particularly of evil people particularly of people who don't seem to deserve it or earn it in any way well that's offensive they don't ask the question who can forgive sins but God alone? But rather they, they ask the question, how can God be, how can, how can a just God forgive sins at all? How come that person can get away without eternal punishment for the sin that they've committed? Well, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe that atheist or non-believer would get more offended, that's okay because I, I have a parable, an analogy of my own. Once upon a time, there were two brothers. They grew up together, but they led very different lives. Their names were Goofus and Gallant. Totally original names. Now, Gallant lived a good life. He, he, you know, he did his chores. He was nice to his parents. And he grew up, and that continued, and he became a philanthropist. And, and, and he was a joy to everyone that he was around. He developed the cure for cancer. He ended world hunger. And he invented a shampoo that made everybody's house pets lived three times as long and were two times as fluffy. By all accounts, Gallant was a good guy, and when he died, peacefully surrounded by those that he had helped in his life, he passed on into the next life and was not forgiven because he was not a believer. He was not a Christian and went straight to hell. I think you see where this is going. Goofus, on the other hand, was a rotten little kid. He did not eat his lima beans or do his homework. He kicked the cat, he pulled the dog's tail, and when he got older, it just got worse. As he got older, as he got older, he began to, to give in to his vices, drugs, and alcohol, and, and all sorts of debauchery. He began to be involved in a life of crime, arson, and theft, and assault. And after he had robbed every single bank in his hometown, he decided to turn to a life of professional crime, of theft and murder on an organized scale. Of course, I mean, he became a politician. But 
him being evil only increased his popularity. He got re-elected into higher, higher offices, and once he'd received the highest office he could be elected to, Chancellor Goofus decided to take the next logical step and become supreme dictator, a malicious dictator. Well, so it went. He fought wars of attrition with child soldiers. He set up prison camps and gulags and labor camps and extermination camps. He unleashed diseases on the world and was all around a bad dude. Well, thankfully, eventually, he got taken down. His country fell and he was put in prison and put on trial for his crime, sentenced to death justly for the atrocities he had committed. Well, on, 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 his, on his waiting for death row, he was put in a cell with a Christian who was also in prison for one reason or another. Now this Christian shared the story of Jesus, his death on the cross, and how God became man, came down, suffered and died to forgive the sins of all of mankind, and that anyone who believes and repents is forgiven. Well, naturally, or maybe not so naturally, Goofus, this horrible human being converted he became a Christian. He was baptized two days before his execution, and he died violently, a faithful Christian, and went to heaven to be at the side of his Savior. What a heartwarming story, huh? The good guy bites it and ends up in hell, and the bad guy on his deathbed basically has a conversion and goes to heaven. What an offensive God. How dare God save an evil person like Goofus? And damn a good person like Gallant. And in fact, this isn't just an allegorical story. History is full of good people or even, even children who die as unbelievers and end up with their unforgiven sin bound to their bodies, dragging them down to hell for their guilt. Whereas horrible, rotten sinners who have done more sin than every one of my five viewers combined end up repenting of their sin, being baptized, having their sin washed away, and being saved, going to heaven. So you can see why an unbeliever, somebody on the outside who doesn't understand how horrible and rotten they really are, or how good the grace of God really is, they see this story, they see this this comparison of a good versus a bad person, a good versus bad, contemporary sort of terms. And they hate that the person who spent all their life racking up debt was forgiven, and the person who spent all their life presumably doing good things but remaining an unbeliever was not saved. So which is harder to believe? Which is harder to do? For God to heal the sick? injured, the physical maladies, or for God to forgive the soul of the sinner, for God to heal that spiritual wound and bring someone who's as good as dead back to life spiritually to be in heaven forever. It's a question worth considering. Which is harder? Physical healing that you can see take place in front of you? Or spiritual healing? where a judge, where a God takes on that punishment on himself, it doesn't just go away, he takes it on himself for the sake of the guilty party. Which is harder, to say to a man, your sins are forgiven, 
or to say to him, get up and walk? You're going to say, get up and walk. All you have to do is have the power to heal him. If you say, your sins are forgiven, that requires a little bit more, more of a sacrifice. I hope you pick up what I'm laying down here. I hope you have a wonderful week. Take care. God bless. So in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, there are some workers that are hired at the beginning of the day, and they work all day for a denarius, which is a day's pay. Uh, then there are some workers who are hired later on in the day, and eventually there is a group of workers who are hired who work for an hour, if that. And they all get paid a denarius. Now, the workers at the beginning, the workers who have been working the entire day, have been working a lot harder than everybody else. They've been working a lot longer than anybody else. So for them, it's obviously unfair. Well, this kind of raises the question that a lot of people tend to ask. Now, a lot of people say, well, I've been working hard, I've been doing these good things, and yet uh, stuff could be better for me. You know, why is my life so hard? Why do other people have easier lives? Um, and the question is asked, why do bad things happen to good people? <laughs> Let's get into that. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's an excellent question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I'm going to rain on your parade right now because I'm going to ask you who the good people are. You can go ahead and tell me. Who are the good people? I mean, according to the Bible, no one is good but God alone. I mean, Jesus says, why do you call me good? When they say, hey, you know, rabbi, good rabbi, teach us, you know, whatever. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Uh, and then elsewhere in the Bible it says, uh, no one is righteous, no, not one, I think. It's in Psalms or something like that. So when you're asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? You need to clarify first. Who are these good people that you're talking about that the bad stuff is happening to? Who are these people who deserve to have better lives and deserve to have better things happening to them? Well, in the parable of the workers in the vineyards, a lot of times it's talking about the Christians who are Christian their entire life. And then they get the reward of eternal life. And then there's the Christians who are Christians for an hour on their deathbed, whatever. And they've been, you know, dirty, rotten sinners their entire life. So why is it that the Christians their entire life get the same reward as the ones who, you know, are, are not Christian their entire life? How is that fair? Well, at the end of the parable, the, uh, the, the master of the vineyard basically says, you know, uh, who are you to tell me what to do with my blessings, basically? Like, well, why are you, why are you, you know, why are you cursing my generosity? Like, how is this your business, uh, how I'm generous to other people? Um, so this question of uh, why do bad things happen to good people is false on its premise. Uh, because it assumes, usually, the person asking the question is a good person. Or they know other good people, you know. Well, I know so-and-so, they're, they're nice to everybody, and they're generous, and they do all of these, these good things. Therefore, they're a good per person. Why, why, would, you know, why would God send somebody who's a non-believer, uh, who does all these good things to hell? Well, the answer to that is that there are no good people. <laughs> Sorry, I hate to break it to you, but uh, you're not a good person. 
In fact, there only was there was only one good person, obviously, and that was that was Jesus. I mean, there was Adam and Eve; they were good until they weren't. But there's only been one good person uh, in history who was good their entire life. And again, this is this is Jesus. This is God. This is man, Jesus. Um, so the question better phrase is why did bad things happen to that one good person now if you understand the whole concept of um of uh, the whole death on the cross thing um it's because god loves you and uh died for your sake now jesus didn't have to become a you know the second person of the trinity didn't have to become incarnate as jesus and suffer and die for his own sake he did that for the sake of other people for the sake of people who don't deserve it which maybe leads you to a second question. Maybe this is a better question. Uh, if you're a bad person and God is doing good things for you, why do good things happen to bad people? And the answer is the same. Because God loves you. Uh, because God you know, cares about you, values you, died for you, and paid the price for your salvation. And once you get that mindset straightened out, life becomes a whole lot easier. It becomes a whole lot easier to, to put in perspective because no longer are you thinking to yourself, you're like, well, I'm a good person. I should be getting better. Well, how come God's so mean to these good people? Well, once you realize that everybody deserves damnation, then the fact that there's any break whatsoever from suffering is a blessing from God. And the fact that God died for people who were evil and hated him, they, he died for them while they were still sinners, while they were still insurrectionists against God, shows that God is good. An atheist will say, well, the fact, I mean, he'll, I forget, there's some name of somebody's Epicurean paradox or something like that. There's somebody's, somebody's, you know, old questions, an ancient question. Why is the question of evil or the question of suffering or whatever you want to call it? If God is all powerful and good, then why does suffering exist? And it always works off this premise that people deserve to live a life without suffering. People deserve to live a life without hardship. But once you put yourself in your place, once you're like, oh, yeah. I actually deserve a, a worse life than what I'm getting, uh, then suddenly this, this envy, this covetousness turns into generosity. Suddenly you're getting more than what you deserve. Now you're not this worker in the vineyard who's been working, well, I mean, in your own mind, you've been working for days and days and days and only getting paid a day's wages. Now suddenly you're this worker who hasn't really contributed anything on his own and then gets called by God to, you know, repent and be saved. And you don't, I mean, again, you don't contribute enough to deserve anything, and then suddenly you get rewarded with more than what you deserve. So it changes from envy, from, from jealousy, well, not jealousy, from envy and covetousness to generosity. So, back to the question. Why do bad things happen to good people? False premise. Why did bad things happen to the one good person? That's a better question, because God loves you. Uh, next question. Why do good things happen to bad people? That's a correct premise. Answer is still the same, because God loves you. So with all of this, again, this is a gospel message. That God died for you because God loves you. Christ suffered and died for you on the cross and rose again in the tomb, paving the way for eternal life for all who follow in his name, all who will believe, all who believe in him. So now, instead of just being, you know, bad people who get good stuff, suddenly Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. That means you're covered with Christ's righteousness. All of the evil you've done, all of the evil you're going to do is forgiven 
as long as you remain in the faith, and you're covered with the goodness of God. So when the Father sees you, he's not saying, why are we doing good things to bad people? He's saying, oh, I see the righteousness of Christ covering this person. Suddenly, it makes perfect sense why I would you know, award them with, reward them with eternal life. So there you go. Next time you ask that question, why do bad things happen to good people? You know the answer. Oh, let's skip donuts for today. In the gospel reading for today, Jesus says to ask anything in his name. Ask of the Father anything in my name. It will be granted. So does this then mean that you can wish for anything you want, tack on the, in the name of Jesus, and get it? Well, let's get into it. So the command in the gospel is to pray in my name. This is what Jesus says, to pray in the name of Jesus. And the difficulty that a lot of Christians have and a lot of people have is they say, well, you know, I prayed for these things in the name of Jesus and didn't receive them. Why is that? Why is it that God says no to some of my prayers? Is it that I'm, I'm praying wrong? I'm not praying good enough? Is it that God doesn't hear me or doesn't want to listen to me? Or is it that God doesn't love me? Why is it that God is saying no to my prayers? Well, first of all, it's important to realize what, what exactly is going on, who God is and who he is in relation to you. So, what God isn't. God is not a genie. God is not the magical genie of the ring or the genie of the lamp where you rub the ring, you rub the lamp and a genie pops out and you get a certain number of wishes. No, God is not a gumball machine where you insert prayer requests or a, uh, a vending machine where you insert the right token and then, you know, out pops your greatest wish. Exactly what you ask for every time on demand. That's not what God is. God is the creator, the father. He's the one who takes care of you. He not only created you, he not only gives you every good thing, but he also decides, you know, how to answer your prayers. So it's not, it's not a, an object that you control. Because if you controlled God like a vending machine or a genie, then you'd be God because you'd be in control. Instead, God is a father who answers prayers. God answers your prayers and cares about you when he answers his prayer. And anybody who has children knows that sometimes they ask for things that they shouldn't get. But sometimes they ask for good things. And even still, those things aren't granted for very good reasons that the children don't understand. Or they're granted in reasons that the kids don't understand. The kid says, I'm hungry. I want a candy bar. And the parents, knowing better, rather than feeding the hunger of their child with a candy bar, they give them something nutritious to eat. The child didn't get what they wanted, but the child got what he needed. Well, let's go back to the questions. Why does God say no when you ask for things? Is it because you're not praying the right way? And this is a difficulty where you're thinking, oh, maybe, uh, you know, I'm praying and I get distracted. I'm praying and I, and, I, and I ramble. I'm praying, but it's a memorized prayer like the Lord's Prayer, so it doesn't count because my heart's not in it. It's not praying from the heart. Or maybe I'm praying, but my hands aren't folded just the right way. Maybe I didn't cross myself right. Maybe instead of crossing myself like this, I accidentally crossed myself like this, like the Eastern Orthodox. And God says, well, I'm not going to answer that prayer. <laughs> it's not about a ritual, though. God doesn't, you know, 
step over these prayers, ignore prayers because you didn't fold your hands the right way or didn't, you know, pray the right way. You didn't pray perfectly, grammatically. You stuttered, you stammered, something like that. The reality is that Jesus says to pray in his name and this is also a pro- this isn't just a command but this is a promise. So this is praying in the name of Jesus and your prayer is imperfect. I mean, as good at praying as you think you are, it's not perfect. It's not worthy enough to it's not it's not good enough to make God give you whatever you want. It's just because you can pray really good, you're a prayer warrior, right? But the thing is praying in the name of Jesus that entreats Jesus to deliver that prayer for you. That's saying, okay, I'm not just praying in the name of Jesus like a magic word, but I'm praying in the will of Jesus. I am saying, dear Lord, whatever I need, this is what I think I need, this is what I think I want, but thy will be done. You're praying in the will of Jesus. You're praying, you know, and Jesus is taking this prayer and delivering it, perfecting it and delivering it to the Father. The Holy Spirit interceding on your behalf, you know, and translating for you, right? So your prayer, as imperfect as it may be, it's perfected when it's delivered to God. So the reason God says no to your prayers, it's not because your prayers are imperfect. They are imperfect, but so is everybody's. And God perfects your prayers for you. All right. So if that's not why God says no, uh, does God say no because he doesn't hear your prayer? because he chooses not to hear your prayer, because you ought not approach him in the first place. Now, this is a, this is a problem that historically has been a big issue. And uh, so in the past, there are, there are some very interesting depictions of Jesus um, that depict him as an angry, wrathful God. And I'm not kidding. Uh, we're making this up. There, Jesus is the angry, wrathful God who sits on a rainbow and hurls lightning bolts at the sinners, at all the Christians who don't, you know, who don't live up to his expectations for their behavior. So you don't want to approach that God. He's a scary God to deal with. You don't want to talk to him. So the idea was, well, you know, I don't have much in common with this Jesus God, but what if I talk to somebody who's already on his good side? What if I talk to somebody like Peter? or John, or James, or, or Philip, or Andrew, or Mary, or anybody, or an angel. What if I talked to an angel and had some sort of intermediary, somebody to intercede on my behalf with, with, uh, you know, with dealing with God? Because God's wrathful, but maybe Mary, God's not going to be wrathful to Mary. So if I ask Mary to pray for me, uh, then Mary, uh, Mary, kind and gentle and mild, will deliver this prayer to her wrathful son so he won't smite me with lightning bolts and instead I'll have a better chance of getting what I'm praying for because Mary is delivering it instead of me delivering it. There are a lot of problems with that. Um, the epistle reading for today actually deals with one of them. It talks about there being only one, only one, only one inter- intercessor between us and God and that's Jesus Christ. And this isn't just saying, you know, you can only pray to Jesus Christ and then Jesus Christ will bring, uh, bring the prayer to the Father. You're free to pray to the Holy Spirit, to the Son, or to the Father as you choose. Um, and Christ perfects it and, and the Holy Spirit intercedes on your behalf and the, the Father hears the prayer. I mean, Jesus says, pray to the Father in my name. But the thing is that Jesus as the, the sole intercessor, is he's also the connection. He is the one who connects the mortal creation with the immortal creator. Now remember, Jesus is God, always was God, always the second person of the Trinity, even be- before he became incarnate as a human. God, fully God, 
became fully man as well. He took on human form, thus permanently linking humanity and divinity in the, in the, in the God-man of Jesus. So Jesus is that intermediary, he is that, that intermediate step. He is that link, that bridge between humanity and divinity. So not only will Jesus, you know, Jesus intercede on your behalf and die for you, which he did on the cross, but when he came down from heaven, he, he created that connection, that familial connection between God the Father and, and you know, the humanity. Now we are free to pray not just, oh, Heavenly Father, but our Father who art in heaven. It's your Father in heaven as well. Your, you know, brothers and sisters of Christ, brothers and sisters of one another in Christ. Uh, but yeah, so God is that connection. So, since you are now children of God and you are free to pray and encouraged to pray, our Father, knowing that God loves you, the reason that uh, the reason that God says no certainly cannot be that He doesn't hear your prayer or that He doesn't want to listen to you because He's got better things to do. That's not it. We are commanded to pray to God. We are told to pray to God, and God's not the kind of person who say, "Okay, pray to me," and then just you know turn off the ringer on his cell phone so he can't hear your prayers. No, no, God is listening to you. God loves you and cares about you and wants you to pray to him. So of course he's listening. All right, so again, why isn't he answering the prayer? Well, what about what about God not loving you? Is that why God hears you, but you know, he's powerful and, he's, and he just doesn't love you? And so he's not going to give you what you need. You're suffering, you, you have a sickness, you're sad, you have depression, you have sin that you can't overcome. Whatever it is, why isn't God fixing the problem when you're asking for it? And if your answer is that he doesn't love you, then I'm going to take you back to everybody's favorite Bible verse, John 3, 16. You know, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, this is proof. Christ's death on the cross is proof, proof of his love. You want to say, okay, how do I know that God loves me? Because he died for you. That's how. Because he took on He took on the punishment for your sin and he paid that price for you. He didn't have to. You deserved death, but God made it so you would not die and he died in your place. That's how you know that God loves you. That God loved you by dying on the cross and he still loves you because he still applies that salvation to you. So, God does love you. And if you're thinking, well, his death on the cross for my sins isn't enough proof that he loves you, then repent, because yeah, you bet it is. Uh, he took away your, your, your punishment and he gave you his righteousness. That's, that's plenty of proof that God loves you. So it's none of these reasons why God says no to your prayer. So why does he say no? Sometimes you don't know. Sometimes in the Bible, we have examples of God explaining why he does what he does. We don't always have that in, in present day life. Sometimes you can look back on past events and say, well, you know, God, he, it, was a good, it was a good choice that he made. You know, you're praying to God, you're like, God, please, please let me marry this woman or whatever. And then the, it turns out to be a, a situation where you would not be a good fit with that woman. God saved you from, from a, a miserable marriage or something, you know? Or maybe, you know, God, please give me this promotion. And then you find out more about the job or you find another job that, that you love even more and it allows you to serve God and love your neighbor. Uh, and, and you can think back and say, wow, God, he really knew, you know, he really knew what he was, he was doing when he, when he didn't give me exactly what I wanted. Sometimes you have that where you can look back on the past and say, oh, that's why God did what he did. Sometimes you don't. In fact, most of the time I would say, you pray for things, and 
they're not sinful because, of course, God's not going to give you something. Like, if you pray for something evil, God's not going to give you something evil. Like, dear God, please help me sin. No, he's not going to not going to do that. God's not going to do evil because you ask him to. So, obviously, that's out. If you ask for that, he's going to say no. Um, but a lot of times when you're asking for something good and God doesn't give it to you, we don't know why. Maybe you're asking for healing and God doesn't heal you until he brings you, until he brings you to heaven. Um, you know, anything that you're asking for, you know, dear God, let me get out of this situation, this horrible, you know, this horrible, depressing situation. And you're stuck in it for a while and you don't know why. But that's part of trusting in God. That's part of praying in Jesus' name. That's part of, you know, the, the whole thing where you, where you know that God knows what's best for you and God has a plan. And it's, I'm not going to downplay how frustrating it must be. I'm not going to say, oh, God is, you know, you're suffering. Oh, God's got a plan. There's a, you know, there's a good reason for everything or whatever. It's, it's not as simple to just brush it off like that. But God answers prayers in the way that he knows how best to answer them. And we don't know why. And until we get to heaven, maybe we don't know. So, no, God is not a genie. He's not a vending machine. He's not going to give you everything that you want. You should know this by now if you've tried praying for, you know, praying for things and God says no. Um, but that, that shouldn't stop you from praying for things. I mean, just because God may say no, he may say yes. Why not pray for, pray for that raise, that new job, that, 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 that family? Why not pray for the big things? Pray for more faith. Pray for forgiveness of sins. Pray for, you know, a good church. Pray for good government. Pray for you know, all these wonderful things. But also pray for small things. Anything that's on your mind. Pray for, you know, you got a pimple. Pray for God to heal that pimple. Pray for God to, to you know, help you do well and study well and do well on your, on your math quiz. Pray for, you know, you, you stub your toe on a door and pray for, the, pray for healing. Pray for everything. Pray for things, you know, pray for, you know, if you're, a loved one of yours died. Uh, pray to see them again. Pray that God bring them back. Why not? Why not? There's no reason to pray to not pray for these things. Go for it. Pray for it. Thy will be done. In Jesus' name, thy will be done. Trust that God will give you the right answer. Um, but you don't always know what that answer is going to be, so why not? Just go and pray for it. Big things, little things, you know, eternal things, temporal things, whatever. Pray for it all. And then trust that God's going to give you the right thing. I mean, God already died on the cross and forgave your sins. God already gave you eternal life. He's listening to your prayers. He loves you and cares about you. Pray for everything. Even if you don't have something to ask for, pray to God and just talk. Just talk. Then open up scripture and just listen. I hope you have one. The feeding of the 5,000 and the manna and quail given to the Israelites in the wilderness. These are both examples of times when God's people were in need. They were hungry and he provided well, he provided bread and meat for them in a miraculous way. But there is another similarity in these two stories that I think is worth getting into a little bit. And that similarity is the testing of the people involved. In both readings, it says that God wanted to test the people. He wanted to test Philip and the disciples in the feeding of the 5,000. And he wanted to test the Israelites to see that they would obey his commands. Why? Let's get into it. The Israelites are tested in the Old Testament with the uh, 
with the bread. And the way that this happens is basically that God says that he's going to send down manna in the morning. Manna is going to cover the ground. It's covered like frost or something like that. And manna just means, what is it? What is it? This bread is covering the ground. What is it? Like, you guys were just complaining for bread, and God gave it to you and told you what it was. But what is it? Because it looks weird. We never had this kind of bread before, especially not, you know, in Egypt, where we would sit and eat meat pots and eat bread till, till we got our fill. So what God would do is he would send down this bread every morning, and then every evening you would have the quail in the camp. Well, with the exception of, you know, the Sabbath, where they'd have to collect, uh, they'd have to collect two days' worth of bread. But the idea was that God would provide for them their daily bread. He would provide for them what they needed every day, each and every day. And the way that they were supposed to trust in God is they were supposed to collect only what they needed for that day, or again, in the case of the Sabbath, for those two days. Now, if they tried to collect, and they did try to collect, uh, more than what they needed, for example, if they tried to, to if they tried to gather up more than what they needed and eat it all in one day, it says that they were, you know, that they ate as much as they want, as they needed, uh, and they didn't have leftovers. Uh, or if they didn't quite gather enough, they still ate ate their fill. Nobody was hungry as a result of this. But a lot of them would try to gather, or some of them would try to gather more than what they needed for that day. They did not trust that God would continue to provide this daily bread for them. So what they would do is they would gather up the bread for more than one day. And then the idea is that, you know, who knows, maybe God won't give us bread tomorrow, so uh, we may as well gather a few days worth, right? Now, this, this, this showed a lack of trust in God, either God's power or God's willingness to take care of his people. And this is what the test was around. God wanted to test them to see if they would obey his commands. His commands, again, in this case, were only gather what you need for the one day, basically. Well, a lot of them didn't, and Aaron and Moses got really mad about it. And what happened was, is they gathered more than what they needed for that day, and then they would find that the, the bread, it stank, and it had maggots, basically. Or uh, it would melt in the, uh, in the afternoon sun, basically. Um, in any case, it was unusable. They tried to gather more than what they need, and God destroyed it. <laughs> because God was going to provide for them every day. Right? So in this case, God was testing them to try to try to get them, the point of his test in this case, uh, he says, I want to test them to see if they'll follow the commands, is because he wants them to trust that he will give them daily bread. He will continue to give them daily bread because he already did it once, obviously, if they're gathering it. So he wants them to trust that he will continue to take care of them. Now, in the New Testament, the, uh, the crowds follow Jesus into the wilderness. They follow him up on this mountain. There's an interesting theory uh, that basically goes that this is the same mountain where, this is the same wilderness where, uh, where Jesus was tested by the devil. The devil was like, make bread out of stones. And Jesus was like, nah, nah, not going to do that. So this is a, you know, this is his way of, uh, this is a way of like spitting back in the devil's face and be like, look at this. I'm going to make bread here after all. And you're not going to be the one who tells me to do it. Um, so these people are in the wilderness. They're hungry. They're following Jesus. And Jesus is teaching them. He knows that they're following. He knows that they're hungry. Uh, and he knows exactly what he's going to do next. But it comes to the attention of people that, that they're hungry. And in other parallels, I, I, I read it from John today. In other parallels, it talks about that this is, you know, uh, that the people, if they go home hungry, they may faint along the way or they may perish along the way. They may die uh, going home because they're so hungry. And they're so far from, you know, their homes or whatever. 
And how are they going to feed all these five these five thousand men? I'm going to, not five thousand people, five thousand men plus women and children. How how are they going to feed them all? Even if they had two hundred denarii, two hundred days' wages, um, they couldn't feed all these people. Not they couldn't buy enough food to you know for these people to even get a little bit. Um, this is what this is what Phil, uh, um, the conversation between Philip and. Um, uh, and, and Jesus is all about. And Jesus, wanting to test Philip, is what it says, wanting to test him, uh, basically says, like, how are we gonna, how are we gonna feed these guys? What are we gonna do? Uh, and I believe it's Andrew. I, I think off the top of my head, I think it's Andrew. I forget. Um, he basically he finds five small barley loaves and, and some fish, and he's like, look, we got these little loaves, and they're probably like these little like biscuits or cakes or whatever, not like huge like big full-size loaves uh, of bread like you think of um, at the supermarket but like these little things of, of barley bread which is you know the poor man's the poor man's grain in the day was barley uh, barley bread and fish so well we got this stuff uh, well Jesus already knows what he's going to do so Jesus you know he call he says to them he says make them all sit down on the grass and, and I'll take care of them and he takes the bread and he blesses it and everything and he gives thanks uh, and then he takes these five loaves and, the, and these fish and he distributes them um, and somehow from five loaves and I think it was two fish uh, in this case I get the numbers mixed up uh, if it's if the with the loaves and the fish somehow with this insufficient quantity Jesus as God obviously is able to feed the multitude able to feed the 5,000 men who are sitting down it's a miracle in fact this is God providing for his people now the people, the Israelites, have just come out of Egypt at this point. I mean, they, they've seen that they've seen the part of the Red Sea. They've seen all these miracles that God has done. This should not be a shock to them that God can provide food for them. So them grumbling is not a good thing. Uh, and now, in this case, in the New Testament, um, again, the disciples should know that yeah, of course, God can just like He could call down manna from heaven if He wanted to. They knew their Bible stories, right? Uh, so God obviously could take care of these people. Um, and and they, they had every reason to, to believe that God had the power to do this and that God loved people enough to do it because Jesus had just come from healing a bunch of people and, uh, you know, casting out demons or whatever he was doing, doing miracles. So God can do miracles and he would do miracles for the sake of loving his people. So in both of these cases, the test was to basically confirm what the Israelites and what the disciples should have already known, that God can do miracles and that God loves his people and does take care of them. Now, the parallel for today um, is when you have suffering today, does this mean that God is testing you? God is testing you in the same way to try to increase your faith, to try to get you to rely on him in prayer. And the reality is that we don't really know. God doesn't tell us. The reason we know that the Israelites were being tested in the way they were and Philip and the disciples were being tested is because the Bible says so. Now, you don't have God whispering in your ear and having private conversations with God telling you this is to test you. Um, so you don't know, like we don't know. So when somebody says, you know, says to me, pastor, why, why am I suffering in this way? I, you know, it could be that God is testing them, but it's not my place to say absolutely that that's why. Sometimes suffering is just a result of sin in the world. Sometimes suffering is the result of evil people, calamity, disease, a broken world, a world broken, infected by sin, a fallen world. Uh, produces fallen consequences. But whatever the case is, whatever the reason is for the suffering, the reality remains the same, that this is an opportunity, this is an opportunity to turn to God. Because whether, whether the suffering is a test or not, uh, 
God is the one who can take you and, and, and resolve this situation. And in the cases of the Israelites, in the cases of, of the 5,000, both of these cases, these are miraculous ways that God solved the issue. So you can trust that God has the power to do these things, and you can ask, and you can trust that God knows what's best for you, uh, and you can ask for miracles. Why not? God gave miracles to his people before. He can give you miracles now. He can take care of you now. Now, this does not mean, this does not mean that God is a genie and will do whatever you wish. You may not get what you wish, but you'll get what you need. So God still takes care of his people even today. Maybe he'll make brain, bread rain down from heaven. Maybe he'll multiply, you know, loaves. Maybe he'll put somebody in your life who will, you know, be that friend that you need, or that person who will help take care of you. Whatever it is, God will take care of you. And if at one point in your life, when it comes time, when maybe you're dying of hunger or you're dying of persecution or illness or, or anything like that, when it comes time to go home, to go home to be your heavenly father, God will take care of you then too. So God may not take care of you in the way that you want all the time, but God will take care of you in the way that you need. So you can trust in God, not just for those small things, but also for the big things too. Go ahead. Ask him for miracles. Go ahead. Pray for daily bread. Pray for forgiveness of sins. Just remember that God already gave you the greatest gift, the greatest miracle with his death on the cross and the resurrection. You already have the biggest thing guaranteed for you. So anything you ask, if you're like, this is too big of a request for God, God already gave you the biggest thing. At this point, everything else he gives you is a bonus. So with confidence, with trust in God, go ahead ask him, pray, search scripture, pray with your friends, pray with, pray with your fellow Christians, ask for these things, ask for small things, ask for big things, and rejoice in whatever God gives you. Whether he gives you exactly what you want, like, like the Israelites want, want their, their, their meat pots and their, their bread until they're full, or if he gives you exactly what you need, like manna from heaven and quail. Whatever it is, rejoice in what God has given you, continue to ask, continue to, to come to him in, in prayer and praise and thanksgiving. And continue to trust that he will continue to take care of you. God died on the cross to save you from your sins. God died on the cross to pay for your sins. And he rose again to pave the way for you to rise again and have eternal life. That's fantastic. He's already given you a miracle. Go ahead and ask for some more. <laughs> All right. Well, no donuts this week. Somebody on another video called me Tubby. <laughs> you guys take care and have a good week. The baptism of our Lord. This is something that we celebrate uh, this time of the church, the, the church new year after, after Christmas and all that good stuff, after Epiphany. The baptism of our Lord. Now, you know Greek perfectly, of course, so you know that to baptize means to wash, usually in a ceremonial sense. And for Christians, they have to be baptized because they have to have their sins washed away. They have to be born again. This is what, this is what baptism is. But if that's the case, if it's for being born again into the family of God, and it's for the, the washing away of sins, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Well, let's get into it. Here we go.
Jesus is baptized by John the baptizer. John the one baptizing, John the baptizing one. John baptizes Jesus in the River Jordan after protesting and saying, no, Jesus, you should baptize me because I am a sinner and you are not. Therefore, the clean one should clean the dirty one. Makes sense in his mind, but Jesus says, no, you have to baptize me. It's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, this means it's part of Jesus's plan, part of Jesus's work on earth to accomplish whatever needs to be taken care of so salvation can occur, all righteousness. But why does Jesus have to be baptized? Jesus doesn't have any sin to wash away, and he doesn't need to be adopted into the family of God. He doesn't need to be born again like we do. But the distinction here is that with Jesus, there's really more than one thing going on here. And it's not the same thing that goes on when we are baptized. With Jesus, it's a baptism in the sense that he is being united with the water. But it's also an anointing. In the sense of a baptism, we're washed clean with this water. So all of our sin is washed away. Um, and what happens when you wash something dirty? What happens to the water? Well, the water gets dirty. And considering how much sin we have, the water is filthy, absolutely filthy. So if you were to try to wash something in water that's already dirty, there's only so clean that you can get it. You need to take the filth out of the water for it to be effective. Well, Jesus is that cleansing agent in the water. Jesus is present in baptism. Not just present in those, you know, those water molecules that float around you if you go into the Jordan River or the place where they think that Jesus was baptized. One of those like 17 locations, it's a tourist trap, and they're like, go get baptized in the same water as Jesus. Okay, you've got the same molecules, lightning, whatever. Anyways, so baptism, the water of baptism, it's instituted by Jesus, this, this, this baptism into, into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, this Trinitarian baptism. And Jesus purifies the water with his holiness, and he is present in the water doing the work. Jesus is present in the water, the word and the water together. Water on itself is not magical. It doesn't do anything. Uh, it doesn't do anything spiritual, but water combined with God's word, and if you remember John 1, Jesus is the word of God. God, water combined with God's word cleanses spiritually, and that's how someone's born again from on high. Jesus purifies that water by being present in it. And at the same time, not only does he make that water pure for us to wash us with, but at the same time, he takes on that, that, that filth, that disgusting, just grime and, and slime and sludge and sewage that just rolled off of you when you were baptized. So this gunk has to go somewhere. Jesus is, in addition to being baptized, he is also anointed. Now, if you know what anointed means, that means, well, the examples they have in the, in, the, in the Bible, you have somebody who has oil poured on them. It's usually a priest or a king or somebody like that. It's, it's, it's a recognition of God setting someone apart and covering them with sort of a, um, a, a sign, some indicator that, that this person is set apart for a specific thing. And it becomes part of their identity. Something is poured onto them, not washed off of them like in baptism. Well, this filthy water, you can think about it like oil. But unlike the oil that drenched the heads of kings and priests in the Old Testament, this was not a fragrant oil of incense and healing and all that good stuff that you would expect in an anointing oil. This is an oil that you would probably get changed out of your car because it is so gunky and disgusting. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, but he was also anointed in the Jordan. He was anointed with the sins of mankind. 
So the sin that rolled off of you in your baptism rolled onto Christ. So what is he walking around all gunky and, and covered in filth? No. He took that sin and he wore it and he carried it to the cross. And that's where it was dealt with. Because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus went and paid that wage, paid for those consequences of sin with his death, with the death of God on the cross. So why did Jesus have to be baptized? Jesus had to be baptized to purify the water and to ever be present in the water of your baptism so that you can be saved. Jesus didn't need to be saved, but you did. Jesus didn't need to be born, baptized, born again, baptized and adopted into the family of God, but you did. So Jesus' presence in the water, the word with the water, makes that possible for you. That's why baptism forgives your sins, creates faith, makes you born again into the family of God. Jesus also had to be baptized because this was one of his anointings. This was when he was anointed, not with the fragrant, sweet, incensed oil, but with the motor oil of sin, with the disgusting filth that needed to be carried and paid for at the cross. That's why Jesus had to be baptized. Jesus' baptism made your baptism effective. Because of Jesus' baptism, your, your sins in your baptism were forgiven. Because of Jesus' baptism, you are adopted into the... Your, your last name is changed. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is now your family. You are now part of the Christian family, part of the family of God, children of God. Man, this is a wonderful thing to think about. It's crazy, huh? I mean, maybe you had a really great baptism. Maybe you don't remember your baptism. Maybe you haven't had a baptism yet, and you should definitely go get one. And you should continue to study God's Word after the baptism and continue to live a Christian life. But that baptism is effective because of Christ's baptism. That water that was cleaned and that purifies you spiritually was the water that brought all of your filth and placed it on Christ. And then he died for you. So why did Jesus have to be baptized? Jesus had to be baptized because you needed to be baptized. Remember that. Think about that. Well, hey, look at that. It's time for donuts. You have a wonderful day.